And as the children are leaving, let me ask that we turn to Matthew chapter 21. For those of us who still have uh, Bible on paper, if not, then you need to flip to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 to 32. Today's text, Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, is about two sons. But it is not about the prodigal son that you have in your, your cell group Bible study material that I know uh, some of us are using, the parables of Jesus. We will, we will cover the prodigal son in, in more detail in October and November. In fact, we have allocated three sermons to that uh, parable of the prodigal son. But today, let's turn to Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. And you know, there, in this world, there are many stories, and even in the Bible, there are many stories about brothers and sons uh, in the Scripture. You know, of course, about the prodigal son that we will cover in October. Then there is Abel and Cain at the start in Genesis. There is Jacob and Esau. There is David and his brothers. There is Joseph and his brothers. And there are also some very ancient stories about brothers that are kind of like used to, to, to discuss uh, philosophy and, and ethics, sort of like Harvard case studies uh, kind of uh, brother stories. One of them is by a Roman uh, uh, a teacher of philosopher called uh, Seneca. He lived from 4 BC, four years before Christ, to 65 AD. So it's very, very early days. And the story goes something like this. The father had a prodigal son, so he disowns the prodigal son. Then he has a remaining good son who was captured by pirates. But this prodigal or bad son went and redeemed the good son. That means he paid a high price and bought the good son back. And, and then uh, he adopts the, the, his brother like his own son. And this father disinherits his good son. Strange story, very sad story, because the good son has followed the bad son. You get it? And so the father says, I do want to have both sons. Disinherits the both of them. Story of two brothers. Another one by uh, another uh, 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 ancient fellow called Quintilian, and he lived from 35 AD to 100 AD. Again, the father had two sons, one good and one bad. Both were captured by pirates. I don't know what it is about these Roman stories that they always get captured by pirates. Then the bad son got sick, and both of them begged the father to ransom them. The father sold all he had, but he could only ransom one son. And because the bad son was the sick son, he ransomed the sick son, brought him back, wanted to heal him. But this son died. The good son later on escaped from the pirates. Now the father, who's penniless, asked the good son for support. The good son refused. So sad story. But today's story is way simpler. Way, way simpler. And so let's read from Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 to 32. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. 
Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, have you ever had such an experience, uh, whether as a father or as a son or, or a daughter, what they call a neto son, right? No action, talk only. Um, those who say yes, 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 but don't do it. And those of you who are fathers, I think uh, you may well have had such an experience. What I meant is like you tell your wife yes, 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 but you never do it. You get it, right? Ah, okay. Well, some time ago, I had just this experience, but it wasn't so much with my son because I do not want to use my son as uh, an illustration too much. Huh? I only have limited quota for that. But it was with, with a staff in PPH. So I said, so-and-so, let's do this. And his answer was no. I was like, baffled. It's obviously the right thing to do. I felt quite insulted. Hey, I'm senior pastor. I'm asking you to do this. He said, no. I felt like, wow, you're so insubordinate. Then angrily, I said, why no? And then he, this person gave some, some reasons, what I thought were very weak reasons. Then I tried hard and I grit my teeth. I said, I've got to be gracious. I've got to be gracious. There are so many people around here. Not to cause a scene, so I walked away very disappointed. But later, this person did exactly what I asked him to do. And all was fine. And this is the very simple and even boring story by Jesus about these two sons. And then he came to verse 31 and he asked, verse 31, which of the two did what the father wanted? It's a pedantic question. It's no-brainer. And they answered him, yeah, the first son. So how do you do an expository sermon on this parable? There's nothing to expose, there's nothing to exposit. Simple, right? This story is so simple. But, but let's look at the larger context of what was taught. And I will borrow Dr. Raj's slide that he used uh, three weeks ago when he painted the picture of what happened then. When Jesus first started his ministry after his baptism in Galilee and when Peter made that great confession, you are the Christ, son of the living God and then started again his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, remember? And then began the conflict with all the religious rulers uh, and authorities of those days. Um, and then we come to these three parables. The parables of the two sons that we are talking about today, and then the parable of the tenants, and the parable of the wedding feast that uh, Dr. Raj covered. And then came three test questions uh, before Jesus. And after this, he went on to his crucifixion and resurrection. And it was in this period of conflict that these three parables came about. And they all come about like questions, questions, questions. There are so many questions. And it all started by a, a question by the chief priests and the elders. And they were asking Jesus, just who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? 
teaching and doing all this stuff. Who gave you the authority? That's in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. Ask Jesus, who gave you this authority? Just who on earth do you think you are? And Jesus replied with a question. He said, I will also ask you one question. And he, then he talked about uh, uh, John the Baptist baptism. Is it from God or not from God? And then he said, if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Verse 24. And then, of course, the religious rulers do not want to, to perjure themselves, right? And, and they say, we don't know. Don't know that? That's in verse 27. And after that came the three parables. The parables of the two sons that we read just now. Then the parable of the tenants from verse 33 to verse uh, 46. That, uh, that the master gave a vineyard and prepared everything for the tenants. And then they like refused to work on it and they even killed his son. Remember that? And then the parable of the wedding banquet that was preached three weeks ago that I'm sure you remember every word. Then the, the Pharisees tested Jesus with three questions. He said, they, they asked him, so paying taxes to, to Caesar, is it right or wrong? One question. Then they asked another question. Oh, there was this woman who married one brother. Brother died, married a second brother. Brother died, married a third, married seven times. And when they go to heaven, whose wife would she be? And then the third question was, what is the greatest commandment? So many questions. And when Jesus finally answered them all, he asked them his question. And he asked them, whose son is the Christ? And there it ends in verse 46 of chapter 22, when it tells us in the Bible, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. And so we come full circle from Peter's declaration that thou art the Christ, son of the living God, to Jesus asking, so who is the Christ? And they dare not answer, uh, ask any more questions. So may I also just ask one question now? Who would you say are the most despised people and disgusting people in modern-day Singapore? Think about it. Who are the most despised people? Would they be prostitutes who steal your husband? Would they be husbands who run out of courtrooms wearing a cap and dark glasses? Who are caught having sex with underage girls? Would they be corrupt government officials or corrupt IT marketeers who would do anything to get a sale? What if I said, I tell you the truth, corrupt civil servants and pastors and those who pay for sex with underage girls are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you guys in PPH? That was the shocking way Jesus ended the parable of these two sons. That was exactly what he said. Well, not exactly what he said, but what he said was this. I tell you the truth. The tax collectors, the people you despise, the prostitutes, the people you despise, they are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, 
you did not repent and believe him. That's how he ended the parable. These are the very despised people of Jesus' days who responded in repentance to God's love and God's grace. And they enter the kingdom of God ahead of the religious folks who continued to be recalcitrant, who continued to be the other son. Let's have another question. How do you respond to God? Actually, when was the last time we ever did anything that suggests repentance? When was the last time we like repented? Let me define repentance, okay? We often get this idea that repentance is all guilt uh, and, and we grovel and we feel so condemned. But the basic meaning of repentance is turning. Turning. Turning to God. Turning to God. Away from something to God. That's just repentance. But we are religious folks. We are not repenting folks. Religious folks always feel that we are pretty decent people. And God must be so lucky to have us in His church. Do you respond to God by being religious, in inverted commas? And I'm using this word religious negatively. In the sense that we are like Pharisees, the religious authorities in Jesus' days. And, and when you have been a Christian for a very long time, uh, it's, it's often that we sometimes also fall into the danger of being religious. What do I mean? Religious people are not repentant people. In a sense that repentant people turn towards God and allow God to transform them from the inside out. But, but religious people see rituals, not relationships with Jesus. Religious people see doctrinal systems and not the Son of God. We are okay because we've done our quiet time today. We are more concerned with the kind of people that enter the church and the kind of clothes they wear and the colour of their hair. Religious people are cynical about everything that doesn't fit in the traditional ways that we have always done church. We despise the tax collectors and the prostitutes uh, uh, people of our day. Religious people are self-righteous because we think that we have met all the requirements and other people have not. After all, we haven't missed a single Sunday in church this year and we are members of a cell group. La, 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 la. Religious people cannot receive from God and sermons because sermons are more often relevant to the other person, not to me. We are very good at reading somebody else's email, as I think Joshua Ng from, from last week uh, mentioned. We sort of like see when biblical teaching is done or instructions is done, it's like email sent to that person, not to me. And we flip across and we say, yeah, that actually is very much for you. You, know? you need to talk less and you need to be more loving. We, we read another person's email. And when God sends an instruction or an email to us, it's filtered. It goes straight to the junk box junk folder. Religious people love to stone people in gossip and in self-righteousness. And some time ago, I was behaving very religiously in PPH. When a preacher I was just listening to, sitting behind, a preacher, preacher kept saying this word, you know, uh, think about it, think about it, think about it. And I was so irritated by it, it's the Singlish way of pronouncing think about it. 
So he said, think about it, think about it. And it was used like a punctuation mark. Like the start of every sentence was, think about it, think about it. Okay, I exaggerate, okay? It was more like the start of every paragraph. But the paragraphs are very short. I was so critical, I could not receive anything from a sermon. And what was God, God saying? Through him, think about it, think about it. But fortunately, I just woke up in time and said, no, I cannot be like that. I got to repent. I got to turn towards God and get something of what God was revealing through this imperfect man and what he was saying through his imperfect pronunciation. I think many of us know that I was on holiday recently, and on this holiday, I read a book, I watched a movie, and I visited a concentration camp. Okay, three things. I read this book by James Missioner called Chesapeake. Chesapeake is an area in the United States on the eastern seaboard. And uh, James Missioner is one of my favorite authors, also, except that unless you go on holiday, you can read, cannot read his book. It's very thick. And he does a, a heavy research into his book, and it's sort of like half fiction, half fact. Well, actually, it's more than half fact. It's like 80% fact, but he weaves it into a fictional story. And, and so much so that you, you, can, you can barely differentiate what is fact and what is fiction. And it was about slavery in the early days of America, about slavery, and about the religious people of those days. How they could justify slavery from the Bible. And the religious white people of those days believed that they were the superior race. And you can just about hear Jesus telling them the three parables when you read that book. And then I watched this movie called The Help. And it was, well, by that time, uh, the, the slaves had already been emancipated. They were given their freedom. But there was racial discrimination. And the treatment of black mates domestic helpers in those days in America, in the southern part of America, and where the employers were able to preach moralistic messages uh, to the mates. And there was this particular episode, this is fiction of course, huh? where this black mate came to the employer and asked for financial help. Can you give me an advance on my salary? Because I want to use the money uh, to register my son. My son is like one of the rare few who managed to make it to university an all-black university. Of course, you'll never get to a white university. And this employer says, I'm doing this for your own good. I won't lend you a single cent or this small amount. You've got to learn to stand on your own feet. And it reminded me a little about some poor treatment that we hear our own domestic helpers in Singapore sometimes get. And these religious people, they speak so graciously. And they speak so gently in church. But you watch the movie and at home, they are like screaming monsters. Bosses at home. And then I visited Dachau, the concentration camp. And also Hitler's holiday village up in the mountain called Kelstein. Kelstein House. And all the religious people in Dachau, they look the other way when they know of what was going on in their own backyard. And so Jesus, in this parable, asked, which of the two sons behaved like sons? Which of the tenants in the story of the tenants behaved like good stewards in the vineyard? And which of the guests behaved 
like humble, appreciative guests in the wedding banquet as celebrants to celebrate the wedding. And I hope when such a question is asked of us, we are not going to be like the Pharisees who say, I don't know. We don't know. Matthew 21, 27. We don't know. But deep in our hearts, we know. We know. We know if we are religious performers or if we are repentant respondents. We know if it is about religious performance or about responsive repentance. Someone said that a sermon should explain the truth and expose the heart. And I hope that this happens today. The focus of the three parables was not really upon the Christian's religious performance at all. Not about the son's work attitude or the tenants or the wedding guests. It was about who they were responding to. The focus is on the father. The focus was on the owner of the vineyard and the focus is on the host of the wedding banquet. It is about God. It is about Jesus. In the parable of the two sons, we see a father God who knows how blessed it is for the sons to enter the family business, to work in the family vineyard, because they will experience the joy of service, because they will experience the gladness of heart that will come from it, and they will realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in the toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For that is his lot. Moreover, when God gives a man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy it, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. That is in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. That's what the father was doing when he asked his two sons to work in the vineyard. When God calls us to work, whether it is in your office or in PPH or in Teban Gardens, it is so that we might find fulfillment and gladness of heart. Secondly, in the parable of the tenants, it was God who did everything. God planted the vineyard. God put a wall around it. God dug the wine press. He built the watchtower. He provided everything. Then he asked for a response from those he rented it out to. He says, reap the fruit of my labor and enjoy. But they rebelled. Then he sent his son and they killed him. You see? And then the third parable, the parable of the wedding banquet. God did it all again. He sent the first invitation. He sent the second invitation. He prepared the feast and then he asked for a response. Come and enjoy. Come and enjoy. But the people didn't come. So let's look at the big picture. The problem wasn't about the wedding garments. If God invited all the poor and down and out of society to his wedding feast, I'm sure he will provide the wedding garments. Even in modern-day Singapore, and I remember going to this place, Guild House, somewhere in Suntec City, when uh, they, you're supposed to be properly dressed. You need to wear shoes, and you need to have a collar shirt. You cannot wear a round neck T-shirt. They provide. They provide. You think God doesn't do that? But the problem was, the wedding guests came disrespectfully, rudely, presumptuously. 
They were full of self-righteousness. They were wearing a fig leaf instead of a wedding garment. They had all their self-effort and self-righteousness. And what did God say about this? They said, he said that these are filthy rags. Filthy rags. You cannot cover more than a little fig leaf can cover. And God provides the robes of righteousness. We can read that in Isaiah 61.10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head with like a priest and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. God gives us this robe, this cloak of righteousness. So what is the problem in these three parables? Starting with the problem, parable of the two sons. And I suggest that the basic problem is one of belief. Belief. We are so self-righteous and so smart that we think that this is all too good to be true and I'm falling off the stage. It's all too good to be true. We don't believe and so we don't behave. We don't recognize God's love and so we don't respond to God's love and grace. It's like the story of this rich man who was walking along the wharf one day and he saw an auction for a slave girl, a pretty slave girl. And two dirty old men were bidding, outbidding one another to buy this slave girl. And who knows what perverted and disgusting, disgusting plans they have for this slave girl. And so he went in. He just wanted to keep it all short. He bid double the last price and he got this girl. When, the, this, when this slave girl was led to him, the slave girl spit at him. And then he turned to the slave girl and he produced a document to set her free. Then the slave girl said, I'm going to work for you for free. Thank you for setting me free. It's like this. It's too good to be true. So you spit at him. What do these three parables teach us? What truth does it explain to us? And where in our heart is exposed as a result? What does it expose of our belief and our behavior? Who do you believe? How do you behave? Are you a religious performer or a repentant respondent to God's love and grace? And by examining our behavior, I'm not talking about doing good works and, and all that. We, we need to settle that, okay? Otherwise, you will all live here with, with guilt and condemnation. And I want to quote this very famous author called John Piper. And John Piper said this, Settle it! Settle it! All the good that God requires of the justified is the fruit of justification by faith alone, never the ground of justification. Let the battle of your life be, uh, be there, the battle to believe, not the battle to perform. So can we settle that? It's about God. It's not about your performance. Now, just what do you believe? Wrong question. Who do you believe? It's who you believe. Is God good? Is God that giving, gracious God? Does He richly provide everything for our enjoyment? As quoted in Scripture. If God is such a heavenly Father, then we are His divine children. If God really sent Jesus to die on the cross on our behalf, then we are His sons. Then we must behave 
like sons. It's our natural response. Do you believe that God is Jehovah Jireh, our divine provider, that He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, even work in the vineyard? Then we are His sons and daughters, and we will want to behave as stewards entrusted with the riches of God's glory. If God is love, then He has every right to command us to love. Before anything else, before commanding us to work and all that, God commands us to love. Ever realize how, have you ever commanded your children to love you? How do you love God? We love God in response to His love. We love God by working. And so we love to work. Our work is an expression of our love for God. It's, it's in response to His love. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Matthew 22, verse 37. Then he added a new commandment. And it, it is a commandment. John 13, 44. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that's the key. As I have loved you. As I have loved That is the new commandment. It starts with, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So God is love. He initiates it. He demonstrates it on the cross. He demonstrates it every time we take communion on a Sunday here. And if you believe, believe and behave, right? If you believe that love is an emotion, then really it cannot be commanded. How do you command your emotion to come up? I say, be sad now. Be sad now. Or be happy now cannot come. Be loving now, be loving now. It cannot come out. But love is an action. An action. An action can be commanded. You believe, if you believe that love is an action, then it can be commanded. If you believe that Jesus loves you, then you can love as Jesus has loved you. You must love one another in action. As God the Father has loved you as a son, you must love one another. So who do we believe in? What you believe is the start of how you behave. If you believe in Jesus, then we will behave like sons and stewards. If we behave as sons and stewards, then it will show. It will show in work and deeds. So what kind of a son are we? Are we this unbelieving, recalcitrant one or the believing, repentant one? God says, I command you to love me and I command you to love one another. But he prefaces it all by, as I have loved you. So it is good to raise your hands and close your eyes in worship. It is an emotional expression of our love. But we are also to love God and one another in action, in word and in deed. In word, especially in times like this, we don't jump on the bandwagon and start criticizing everything and then and, and more, and speculating and judging. We speak words of encouragement. And as we prayed earlier, let your speech be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Indeed, we're going to embark in two weeks on a 40-day campaign of love and blessing. I hope it will not stop at 40 days. I hope it doesn't stop at 40 days. 
but that it'll be forever. Not 40, but forever. That we're going to be, even this Sunday, when we go out to the hawker centre, we will bless the auntie who clears our tables. We will look them in the eye and say, thank you. They know that this bunch come from church, you know. Maybe you're in Vivo City. That's our staff canteen, by the way. Huh? In Vivo City and, and uh, oh, this bunch must be from PPH. Look them in the eye and we say, thank you. We are kind, we are gracious. And please don't give lip service as one of the sons did in Matthew 21. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Three bags full and doesn't do anything. You know, last week we, we sang a very tough song. You remember the song? The chorus goes, Jesus, I believe in you and I will go to the ends of the earth. I want us to sing that song again. You know, and you can sing the song, okay? But we, we don't pay lip service, okay? Yes, sir, yes, sir, I'll go with you to the ends of the world. Um, because if you believe in Jesus, you will know that he's not some spoiled spot, that he's just out to mess up your life. You know, give you the most difficult areas, the most difficult bosses, and, and just mess up your life. If he wants you to go to the ends of the earth, he will provide a way. The Bible says that His grace is sufficient. And there may be some of us here who are called even in middle age or older age to go to the ends of the earth, whether to work or to preach the gospel, to serve Him in a secular capacity or in a, a Christian uh, uh, full-time work uh, capacity. Then you need to believe that He will give you the grace. If it is East Timor or China, His grace will be sufficient to see you there. But you remember the story of this demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 or Luke chapter 8 when he was delivered by Jesus and he wanted to go full-time. Jesus, I want to follow you to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, no, you go home. You go home, you go back to the, your end of the earth and you tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I guess for many of us, we are that demon-possessed man. Delivered, freed, ransomed. We spit on Jesus when we didn't know, how, didn't know any better, but now we know. Now we know that God loves us. And He says, go back home. Go back to your end of the earth and declare what God means to you, what mercy He has shown uh, to you. So let's sing this song together. I ask the worship team to come up. Today, can we be responsive and repentant? You want to throw ashes on your head, that's a biblical way, but we may not need to do that. But just turning away, turning away. Let's turn back to Jesus. And in our word and in our deed, if we have not behaved like sons of the living God, let's turn back to Jesus and step out of here as sons, as stewards. Can I invite you to rise and stand before God as we sing this together?
sons and daughters of the living God, children of God, fellow believers, Christians, would you turn? Would you repent? Would you turn to God and ask Him to send you to the ends of the earth? Whichever corner of the earth that He has sent you, in your family, in your offices, when the world sniggers at the name of Christ these days, when the world beats down on the body of Christ, the church of Christ, would you stand? Would you go home? Would you go to your corner of the earth and tell what God means to tell the world your story, how He has delivered you, how he has taken you out of darkness. Just your story 
simply how much Jesus means to you. You have peace in your heart. Eternal future is secure. If He has healed you of illnesses, if He has healed you of relationship issues, give thanks and tell it. Tell the story of Jesus. I want to open up the altar now for those who feel like you have no strength to do so. In fact, better hide yourself and don't declare yourself a Christian. Or you feel just guilty and condemned that you are like not good enough, you have not served the Lord you worship. Don't do that. God did not give us a spirit of condemnation. He gave us a spirit of sonship. And so come forward, we pray together, we ask God for strength. And I think God loves it when His children come repentant, turn to Him. Blessing from and I will give the world to tell your story until the chorus. Just one last time and then I will end in prayer. If you'd like to come forward to, to pray together, to be prayed for, then I welcome you to do that. And I will give the world to tell your story. And I will give the world to tell your story. Know that you've called me. Know that you've called me. Lost myself for good within your promise. And I won't hide it. I won't hide it. strength we would go we want to go to the ends of the earth that you sent us to as we live here Lord we want to go and proclaim your love your mercies so that the world would see that you are this pure and holy perfect and beautiful God through us and we repent Lord we don't want to be like the sun who says yes and don't go we repent and we turn to you Lord give us the strength enable us to go into the world to tell your story that your call on our lives would always be fresh 
that instead of thinking that we are good, that we will lose ourselves in your goodness. We're not going to hide it. So Lord, I pray for each one here, Lord, that we will strengthen them with the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God will guide us into the world to declare your goodness in word and in deed, that every word that proceeds out of our mouth would be words of grace seasoned with salt, and in these times especially, with wisdom from on high, knowing how to answer everyone. So go with God. In Jesus' name, Amen.